We're going to start a new series. It's called Behind the Scenes. We're going to be studying the book of Esther. And when you go through the book of Esther, you'll find out that God is never mentioned throughout the entire book. However, when you read the book, you realize that he has been orchestrating behind the scenes all of the events in Esther's life. It's just an amazing, amazing story. I heard an amazing story this morning that I was going to share something else to open up the service, but I wanted to share with you a story I heard from Robbie Zacharias this morning. Anybody listen to him this morning by any chance? He was telling a story about a friend of his where he and his friend were actually missionaries in the Vietnam era, and they were doing a lot of evangelism and work in the demilitarized zone, but one day as Robbie left, his best friend who was sharing Christ with him ended up getting taken prisoner by the Viet Cong. And he spent a lot of time in that prison getting brainwashed with Marxism every single day. Every single day he was supposed to read only in Vietnamese these truths, quote truths about Marxism and how capitalism held you hostage and, and uh, how there is no God. And it was day in and day out for months. And he struggled so that one evening he decided to say, God, if you're, maybe you're not real and maybe I need to give all this stuff up. Well, that next day he was called to do latrine duty and he was cleaning the latrine and he found a piece of paper wadded up in that latrine and that piece of paper had American English or English on it and he thought you know I'm going to grab that and he grabbed that and he washed it and he took it into his bunk that night and in the darkness of the night he read and pulled that paper out and in it said nothing can separate you from the love of God and it just was an amazing moment in his life and so he volunteered every day to clean the latrine. And every day there was a wad of paper in it. And every day there was scripture on it. And he found out that the commander of the prison camp was using pages from scripture as toilet paper. And so he was cleaning and washing that. And so he had scripture every day until he escaped from that prison. And as he was escaping one day... He was found out by a few Viet Cong soldiers and they questioned him and he lied to them and said, no, he wasn't escaping. So they left him alone. Well, he felt guilty about that. And he thought, you know, if they ever came to me again, I must tell them the truth. And they did. And before they got on a boat to escape, these four Viet Cong soldiers threw him against a wall and said, are you escaping as a prisoner? And he said, yes, I am. And those four Viet Cong soldiers said, can we go with you? God was directing behind the scenes. And I want this series in Esther to be an encouragement and a challenge to each one of us to realize no matter what's going on in our lives, there's a big God who cares enough about your life that he's got all these little storylines that he's directing throughout your life. And it's real easy to see them, you know, in hindsight, but sometimes we don't get to see them in the present, because sometimes we're so caught up in our circumstances, we can't see the forest through the trees. And I'm sure as we go into the book of Esther, you're going to see how Esther was one day just being living a normal life as a young girl, and all of a sudden, something dramatically happened in her life. And to make sense out of that was probably impossible. And yet, to know that somehow this young lady probably knew in her heart of hearts that somehow God was still orchestrating her life, even in the crazy circumstances that were around her. 
And you need to know that too this morning, that no matter what you're doing, where you're living and what circumstances you're in, God is directing behind the scenes. And so I want to start right into this message this morning by taking you to the first principle. And that first principle is this, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our circumstances, God is always at work behind the scenes. We need to remember that. If you go back to Dan's message last week, Pastor Dan, when he talked about praying for that miracle, some of you have had those miracles happen and you probably were very desperate at times and you realize all of a sudden, yeah, God was in that. God pulled that off. God was the one. Boy, God's amazing. And so God is always at work in our circumstances behind the scenes. Let's go into the book of Esther this morning because we're going to see some really, I think, some interesting perspectives that I've never seen in chapter one before. And some of these perspectives may be a little bit speculative, but I think uh, fair enough that as you walk through this with me, hopefully that you will take these and kind of let these ruminate in your own life as well. Well, this book of Esther was written back in 460 B.C. It was possibly written by um, Esther's uncle, Mordecai. It could have been written by Nehemiah or Ezra. But the story takes place during the reign of the Persian Empire, which was the most powerful empire on earth at that particular time. In fact, they were ruling over 127 provinces in the world at that point. And so they were the most powerful kingdom there was. And it was ruled by King Artaxerxes, or Xerxes, and uh, some have named him Ahasuerus. And we'll kind of interchange those words along the way. Well, we see Esther being written during the third year of the reign of Artaxerxes. So we need to jump into the story. So let's look at chapter one and let's read the first five verses together. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, which was the capital at the time. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So he has this banquet and he invites all these uppity-ups, all these dignitaries. For how long? For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Six months of partying. Unbelievable. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven more days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who are in the citadel of Susa. So he opens up the party one more time for seven days for all the, the lowlifes or the normal people to come and share in his extravaganza. Is that the end of verse 5? Okay. It's always hard for me to read off the screen and not out of my Bible. That's one of those things. Sorry this morning. So anyways, the king holds this banquet for 180 days. And during this particular time, when you read about it, you find out that, that, that it was an open bar the whole time. They could drink as much or as little as they wanted to. So you can imagine what was going on for six months in the palace. It must have been an absolute mess or debauchery of, of, of craziness. And then he says on the seventh day, he decides that he's going to have one more last hurrah. And he invites all of these people in. But on the seventh day, he decides, you know what? People need to know that I got a babe for a wife, okay? And so he decides that he wants his wife to come and parade her physical body in front of all these drunken men. 
Now, at the time, it says in verse 9 that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace. And we know that in that day, women were nothing more than property rather than people. By and large, women were were a second-class citizen. They were to be seen and not heard. And so she was having a separate banquet at the time. And so the king, in his drunkenness, decides, you know what? I want everybody to see how beautiful my wife is. Now, that sounds like a legitimate issue, but in reality, she denies the king's request. Why did she deny that request? Well, we can only speculate, but we do know this, that she was supposed to display her physical beauty, and women were covered from head to foot with the burqa and the whole thing, and their face was always veiled. So somehow, he was asking her to do something that was contrary to not only the culture, but to her own self-worth. And so consequently, he asked her to come out and parade her body in front of all these drunken men. And she refused this, knowing the risk, because at the time, if you refused what the king decreed or what he asked, you could have been banished from the kingdom, you could have been thrown in prison, you could have been killed. I mean, this was a very risky thing that she did when she denied this request of parading in front of all these men. Some scholars believe that he was actually asking her to parade naked in front of all these men, but at the very least, she would have had to drop her veil, which was unwomanlike uh, at that day, to show off at least her face. I look at that and I I thought of a principle that I think is really powerful here because I see this woman, this queen, as being somewhat of a heroine in our story. Because what I see in this woman is that she should, uh, uh, that this principle is that she was not going to allow, no matter what the risk was, for somebody to damage her self-worth and her self-respect. And so my principle here is this, women should never underestimate the glory of their inner beauty. Women should never underestimate, ladies don't ever underestimate the glory of your inner beauty. Your character, your heart, your, your, your dignity, your honor, your self-respect, don't ever underestimate that. And there are women in our culture today, one of the biggest issues that women face today in our culture is a low self-esteem. And women are paraded in media all over the country because of their external beauty and, and all of the goes, all of the trappings with that. And it just really takes its toll on women. But don't ever underestimate your inner beauty. The reason why I say that is you'll notice in First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth. Did you catch that? Your inner beauty is what? Of great worth in God's sight. We focus so much on the externals. And what Vashti was trying to protect, I believe, was her internal dignity, her self-worth, her value. And her husband was showing disrespect by parading her in front of all these drunks. So I see her as a hero. Clearly, the king did not honor his wife. He was drunk. He was probably proud of her, yes. But in that reality, it was a poor decision by the king. And I believe the king regretted that. That's my interpretation. We don't know that for sure. But I think there was some regret that went along with that when he actually became sober. So principle number three I see here is that husbands should always treat their wives with respect. 
Husbands should always treat their wives with respect. See, we can learn something from this story, even though it's negative, because what we see here is a husband who did not respect his wife enough to honor her. And when she refused to come, it really ticked him off. He didn't respect, I don't believe, his wife. And a lot of that was cultural, yes, but in reality, this was his, quote, significant other. And he didn't respect her. So principle number three, husbands should always treat their wives with respect. And we find that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, right? It says, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. He did not respect his wife. He treated her like a sex object. And she refused, as we see. Now let's go on in this particular story and look at verses 13 through 19. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Malena, and Manukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked, she has not obeyed the command of the king Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Manukim, Mamuk, Mamukim, excuse me, replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women... And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to come before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the royal king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. And that was true about the laws and Medes and Persians. Once the law was said, it could not ever be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. These guys were scared spitless of their wives. They were afraid. They were fearful. I see these guys personally. My opinion is that they were a bunch of insecure leaders. They couldn't handle a wife who could maybe speak her mind and stand up to her, stand up to them. You see, they were wanting to rule over their wives. They were trying to rule over their wives. And, and I think these guys were just afraid that with Vashti's example, that the entire women's movement would start to take hold and these guys would have been either embarrassed or lose their, quote, control. And so I see this as principle number four, that insecure leaders are often afraid of losing complete control. Have you ever met anybody like that? Anybody in your life, a boss or somebody that you know that has some real control issues? And when their control is perhaps even challenged, they get a little afraid and they try to micromanage it even more? I think that's what these guys were afraid of. They were afraid that if they give their wives too much power, they're going to lose complete control and they might have to be accountable. And so they immediately rise up and say, we can't have this. This is this queen that, that has stood up to, to the king. This is not good. And it was, I think, all about her own self-respect and her own dignity. 
You see, I think their egos and their desire to be completely unchallenged caused them to make an irrevocable decree to stop this epidemic that hadn't even, that hadn't even spread yet. But they were going to nip it in the bud. You know, we can't have this. We can't have any woman challenging our authority. Well, in verse 22, it says the decree stated this, that every man should be ruler over his household. That word ruler means absolute authority. Never to be challenged. Here's principle number five. I believe that the only leader God ordains is a servant leader, not a ruler. Not a ruler. Ben, are you trying to be a ruler in your household? That's not what God ordained. God ordained to be a servant leader. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. It says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise over authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So what God has ordained is servant leadership, not rulership. And what these men were trying to do is create a model of rulership, if you will. No matter what environment we're in, as a leader, whether it's an elder in a church, a pastor, a husband, a dad, a boss, what God has truly ordained is servant leadership. Servant leadership. My question this morning is, are you a servant leader? Are you so afraid that somebody's going to come along who's maybe more capable or who maybe a little bit more vocal or somebody who might challenge you or might consistently hold you accountable and you resist that? That's being a ruler. That's being unapproachable. That's not being a servant. That doesn't mean we can't lead. But the point I'm trying to make here is is that usually insecure leaders have a problem with anybody who is more capable or brings their capabilities to the table that might challenge their authority. So what I see here in this particular story, from my perspective, you can draw your own conclusions. I see a bunch of men who were insecure as leaders where they're culturally, were in complete control of their women, of their wives, because they were more than just, they were just property, really, not truly people. And they were trying to do everything they could to desperately maintain control so they could micromanage everything. And you know people like that. And I believe what God is saying here that the only leader that God has ordained is a servant leader. What we see a transition here, and we go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. And in verse 1, it says this. Later, when the anger of King Artaxerxes, or Xerxes, had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So they get... King Xerxes to sign this decree. And Xerxes was really angry that Vashti didn't show up when he invited her. But later, it says, when the anger of the King Xerxes had subsided. That word later is an interesting word. As you study history, you realize that the later was actually four years after this incident. Four years. His anger had subsided, and it was later, when we say that, it was four years it took him to kind of settle down, apparently. But during that four years, there was something interesting that was happening in history. 
Because everything that Xerxes tried to conquer was a piece of cake. But then he ran up against the Greeks. And during that four-year period, King Xerxes tried to conquer Greece. And in trying to conquer Greece, he totally failed. It didn't work. It was the first time probably in his career as king that he suffered a real defeat. And so if you look at this particular moment in history, you'll see that this king was extremely angry and it had subsided. And and he then remembers what Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. I think, this is my opinion here, so bear with me. I think he was regretting that decision because it took quite a bit of pressure to get him to make that decree. And I'm not sure once he got out of, out of his drunken state and became sober and realized what he had done, I think he maybe had a little bit of regret. That's just my opinion. But we'll see here that in four years, he didn't have a significant other, right? He could have had any woman he wanted to in the kingdom to satisfy his sexual desires. But in those four years, he didn't have what I would call a significant other person in his life. There was no queen on the throne with him. And I think over that four-year period, I think this king, because of his defeat, became a little bit lonely. The reason why I say that, look at verses 2 through 4. It says, Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of this realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. By the way, before I read on, we think from historians, they said that there were probably from, uh, at least when Josephus, who was a historian, said that there were probably over 400 girls brought to Susa at that point. So we have a beauty contest with 400 women in it, okay? You got that? Okay, so let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Here's what I think was going on here. I think that his aides saw that the king was really perhaps a little depressed. He was defeated by this country of Greece and he was also missing his bride. I think there was a point where he just was feeling a little bit lonely And that he needed a boost. He needed some encouragement. And so one of his aides comes to him and says, Hey, I got an idea, king. Why don't we have a beauty contest and let's find you a new wife. You need that. You need that shot in the arm. And so I believe that's what God was doing here. And he was orchestrating this again all behind the scenes. So that's where we're going to stop in the story today. Because what I see here is God manipulating and working behind the scenes using a pagan woman and a pagan king to ultimately begin the story of the absolute deliverance of the children of Israel. And during that period of time, we could see how God was directing all these little incidents behind the scenes, unbeknownst to anybody. And it's fascinating to me how God, and this is one of the major points that I want to share with you this morning. And so don't forget this. God is at work in the lives of people, even though, first of all, the circumstances seem totally out of control. You look at these circumstances here and you don't have any clue as to what's going on here at this point in the story other than we have the hindsight to know what God was setting up. 
But what's really amazing to me is that sometimes we think that God doesn't give a rip when our circumstances are out of control. He's got it under control. He's got a plan and he's working it. He's working that plan. I know there's a lot of you sitting here this morning that feel like some of the things that are going on in your life, the health issues, financial issues, relational issues, all these things seem sort of out of control. And sometimes you're probably even thinking, God, do you even care? Are you really working it? And I want to share with you this morning that this is something I have to be convinced of day to day. You know, I I don't have that all wired because there are days where I think, God, do you know what you're doing? You ever felt that way? But here in this particular case, we see that as we know the rest of the story, see, we're seeing it hindsight. But in the middle of all this, when we come to Esther, she's going to look at this and think, are you kidding me? Are you sure you know what you're doing, God? I'm this lowly Jewish girl who's an orphan who's been adopted by my uncle. And you want me to be in this beauty contest with 399 other women? Are you serious? This can't be true. This can't work. And I wonder how many times in our own lives where we, we get into these circumstances of our life, we say, God, are you kidding? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. And yet we've got to be confident enough to know that if we're God's child, he's working his plan. Amen? It's behind the scenes. It's just like finding a new pastor. Right? Sometimes you've probably been thinking, it's been a long time. We got to get Garishay off the pulpit. My goodness, we're tired of him. We need a guy that really knows how to talk. You know, somebody you know, might be saying, what, what are this? Why, why is this? Why is it taking so long? Is God really? He sure is. And you're going you're gonna to see the result of that soon. So God is at work in the lives of his people, even though the circumstances seem to be out of control. Here's the second thing that I've learned from this particular point at the story. God can use any individual or authority to accomplish his ultimate plan. Who is God using to accomplish his plan? A pagan woman who was trying to protect her own self-respect and an egotistic, narcissistic king who was drunk. Does that kind of blow your mind a little bit? You know, Scripture tells us that God is sovereign over kings and rulers and leaders. He's even got the presidential election wired. (laughs) Even when we sit there and watch the TV and scratch our heads and say, are you kidding? God can use any individual or authority to accomplish his purpose. He could even be using ISIS to accomplish his purpose. You see, we've got to understand that God is ultimately on the throne. Amen. He's in control. That's what we've been singing about this morning. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken the time to look back in your life and see all those little pieces of puzzles that came together in the, in the midst of it? You couldn't see the forest through the trees, but you look back and you say, how did that piece of paper end up in a latrine? You know, it, got, it had to be God. It had to be God. I'd like to close with a story of my own life. When Lynn and I left Wisconsin to come down to Phoenix to plant a church, we didn't know what God had in store for us. So we took a trip down to Phoenix to do an exploration. 
just to see what was out there. And we didn't really have any money. To be honest with you, we didn't have a credit card at the time and we didn't have any cash in our pocket. But somebody helped us out with a plane ticket to fly down to Phoenix from Omaha. We dropped our kids off in Omaha and we were at the Omaha airport. It was probably somewhere during the October era when there was a premature blizzard that was blowing and it was covering the whole Midwest. And so our plane was delayed. And Lynn decided to pull her Bible out of her suitcase or out of her out of her purse or whatever, and she opened up her Bible, and in the Bible there was, she opened up her Bible, and in that Bible was a $50 bill. And we don't know how it got there. We had no idea. But we finally got our plane, and we ended up in, I believe it was St. Louis, wasn't it, hon? And we got to St. Louis, and they said, uh, there are no planes leaving tonight. You're going to have to stay in a hotel. Well, we didn't know what the hotel was going to cost, but they said, we're, we're going to give you a reduced rate because we know this is an inconvenience. So we stayed in the hotel. We stayed in the hotel that night. And in the morning, we had breakfast. And guess how much the hotel and the breakfast cost? $49.75. <laughs> so I took the last quarter and played Pac-Man before I left the hotel. <laughs> We got, to Phoenix, we got to Phoenix and we met the district superintendent. We had a glorious time and we flew back home and the rest is history. That was over 30 years ago. And at the time, we didn't know who put that $50 bill in that Bible. But you know who did? God did. God put that in there. We had not seen a $50 bill, I don't think, since we lived in Wisconsin. You know, that was a lot of money to us at that point in time. Later on, we heard maybe, what, 20 years later, 25 years later, it was my dear sister-in-law who thought maybe we might need it. And she slipped it in her Bible and didn't tell us. But I look back on that again and I say, God, you were in the midst of our difficult circumstances. You provided for us. You, You came along and you were working your plan. And God took us to Phoenix and gave us a, 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 a fruitful ministry and, and God used us there in a mighty way. And I look back and I think all those little things, now that I look back and I see, God, you were doing this and you were doing, oh, you did that. Oh man, well, why didn't I see that at the time? This is crazy. And once in a while, he'll kind of show you on the media because I, I feel like at that point it was like, God, you are so faithful. How, how could we have ever orchestrated this? It had to be all you. And you're reminding us that you're in control, that you're still on the throne. Do you believe that in your own life this morning? Let's pray. Father, as we dig in deeper to this story, we marvel at how you put circumstances and people together. And I know, Lord, there are people that are sitting here this morning that feel like there are certain areas of their life or circumstances that just don't seem to add up or sort of out of control. But God, I pray this morning that each person would walk out of here feeling like, you know what, God, you got it. I got your back. God's saying to us, I got a plan. I'm working the plan. You just be available. You just be willing to allow him to to lead you and to guide you. And you're going to look back someday and say, oh, my goodness, God, you are amazing. How you work, how you direct traffic behind the scenes. God, help us to learn that 
apply that and own that as we walk through this book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.